Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Travis McLeod, who's the CEO of the Center for Policy Development. Travis, welcome. Good to be with you, Alex. So I thought we'd kick off with um, an article that you wrote probably a a month or two ago now in The Guardian around the 10 steps to build a stronger Australia after coronavirus. And we haven't obviously seen the end of coronavirus yet. But one of the areas that I really wanted to kick off with is the first point, which is to never underestimate systemic risk again. And what does that mean for you? And and what specifically does Australia need to look out for? Sure. So I, I wrote the article off the back of conversations that the Centre for Policy Development, which I'm fortunate to run, had been convening uh, with experts and um, and stakeholders both in Australia and overseas um, during COVID, and um, it was it really brings together quite a few of the um, the ideas that had been floated in those discussions about what Australia could do, not just during COVID, uh, but on the way out of COVID to build a stronger. Uh, more sustainable, more equal society. And to your question about systemic risk, one of the people we had involved in the early conversations was Professor Ian Golden, um, who I used to work for at the Oxford Martin School um, in in the UK. And Ian um, quite famously now predicted, um, I think back in 2014, that a pandemic uh, would be the cause of the next financial crisis. Uh, And... um, much has been made, you know, over the last six, seven months now that, that this is a black swan event. And I think one thing that certainly has struck our conversations is that, you know, pandemic and coronavirus were not new words when COVID-19 began. Uh, this risk was foreseen. Uh, we knew um, that it was foreseeable. And uh, there are other systemic risks as well, like climate change, um, antibiotic resistance, um, infrastructure failure cyber and um, it's it's incumbent on governments and businesses and um, institutions to make sure that they are looking uh, clear-eyed at those risks and making sure they're prepared uh, for them and and we we weren't adequately prepared uh, for this um, for this systemic risk is there a bit of an issue that australia has had it too good for too long as sort of one of the reasons why sort of this systemic risk has maybe been sort of underestimated for a large part probably i think that's a fair statement I mean, I think the lesson, one of the lessons, and, and look, we're right in the middle of it. I'm speaking to you uh, from lockdown in Brunswick West in Melbourne. We've just, um, you know, all of Melbourne has just entered another six weeks of lockdown. Um, I think one of the lessons is that we ignore these systemic risks at our peril. Um, I mean, Australia has has often been a leader in pandemic preparedness and was ranked, I think, fourth last year by a global study. Um, but where we were weakest in that study was our um, operational readiness, um, the amount of dress rehearsals we had had um, to make sure we were ready for when the next pandemic struck. Um, and, you know, that's telling uh, in, in hindsight uh, because um, it speaks to uh, probably the, the fact that we were a little slow off the mark with some of our responses, but through the back end of March, I think really came together as a country, as governments, as, as communities and, and businesses to really be on the front foot and flatten that curve, so to speak. Um, this next wave will be another test. 
Um, but it's not just um, pandemics that we need to be um, alive to and preparing for. And, you know, you're right, Australia's had a blessed run. We've had, um, I think, you know, 29 years of, of uninterrupted economic growth until until now when we get the next um, set of results. And we've probably become complacent about a number of, of systemic risks that imperil um, governments, societies and businesses if we aren't um, better prepared for them. The most obvious, of course, um, is climate change. And, uh, you know, it was only, I think, two weeks ago that the central bank network um, for greening the financial system, some 66 central banks and prudential regulators from around the world uh, with some major international development banks as observers released their set of reference scenarios for how uh, climate, physical and transition risks uh, will impact um, the financial system. And they will be very important reference scenarios for Australia um, and for countries around the world as we plot our way out of COVID. The head of the, the network of central banks for greening the financial system, Frank Elderson, who said something, I'll paraphrase, but if we ever needed an example of what a sudden shock to the system might look like, if there was a sudden transition or a sudden physical event um, because of climate change, um, COVID provides that example of what a sudden shock to the system uh, looks like when things literally have to shut down. If we look at the Australian context, uh, the, the caseload of our National Employment Services System, Job Active, was about 613,000 at the turn of the year. Um, at the end of May, it was nearly 1.4 million. So these events are, are not without horrible consequences, which we are seeing on a daily basis for communities, for families. Um, for people, whether it's around their, their livelihoods, whether it's around their health um, and threat to life, whether it's around community cohesion. And, and Australia um, is, is coming together, I think, in its response. But uh, for climate change, um, these sudden shocks will become more regular, not less regular, unless we align our growth pathway to the Paris Agreement. And that means choosing one of the reference scenarios that the NGFS has put out over the last fortnight that get us to a 1.5 degree temperature rise. And then that in practice means net zero emissions by 2050 and, and using science-based targets working backwards from that date to make sure that we, we're reorienting our, our economy and our industries accordingly. We're seeing a number of countries and institutions around the world that are using the crisis that's been caused by COVID to accelerate their investment in climate and transition policies. So there's a there's a dividend, a double dividend in in the response. And that's something that, that Australia needs to uh, be doing as well. I guess the next question is the financial problems that we have. It's actually seems to have made the problem of the coronavirus even worse and the impact on people from an employment point of view has also got worse because there's just no slack in the system. Do we need to change the mindset of how we think about finance and business in connection to pandemics and, and climate change? Well, well, on that, I mean, the, the Deputy Governor of our Reserve Bank, Guy de Bell, spoke um, last year at a, at a Centre for Policy Development event, and he was the third big regulator in Australia to say that the climate change will have first-order economic and financial impacts. Dr de Bell we're certainly not the first regulator to come out on this. Mark Carney, other institutions around the world have been doing the same, but it's obvious that there will be large um, first-order financial and economic impacts because of climate change, which increases the, the need to have 
a smooth and orderly transition and to accelerate the transition by way of our economic structure and industries uh, to a net zero future. I mean, it's today I think that one of the superannuation funds, First State Super announced that it, it would be transitioning its investment and they've said in their release that climate change clearly poses the most significant risk to investment portfolios over the long term. And that requires um, investors and businesses to step up their response to it, which was really recommended and may well be mandated as part of the task force of financial-related climate disclosures. So I I think it's been fairly clear on that for some time. In terms of the financial um, backdrop that these super funds need to try and work with, they've also got members that sit behind them. They've got members that are paying in, they're working. You know, how how do these sort of sort of map out you know this this change that that's happening and and the and the goals that they have at the same time as not affecting the the economy too much it's very easy to sort of have the goal from one point of view from a, a climate perspective but i guess the other flip side is how do you try to transition these these businesses without affecting employment too much and also affect the members superannuation as well because there is that that trade-off to be managed I think there are a couple of points to be made here. I mean, the first is that, as a lot of economists and, and other experts have pointed out, and particularly Mariana Mazzucato, who it's wrong to have a growth at all costs mindset. Growth doesn't happen in the absence of a planet, and we need to think much more clearly and strategically about the shape and direction of that growth, not just growth for the sake of it. And there are a number of opportunities that are inherent in that in that transition to a, a net zero carbon world. And, and there's, there's been a release almost every day um, by governments, by businesses, by investors around the world talking about the double, triple dividend um, that can be, be had for our economies and for our environment because of the stimulus and additional stimulus measures that will be required because of COVID. The second point to make is that some of the work that the Centre for Policy Development has done on the responsibility of company directors and fiduciaries to look at how the best interests of their organisations, be it companies or their members, interact with climate risk, physical and transition risks, is now imperative. It's a a legal responsibility. The the legal opinion we commissioned by Noel Hutley, SC and Sebastian Hartford-Davis was described as a landmark opinion by the Reserve Bank in its financial stability update last October. And, and that's why we have said that the, the network of central bank for granting the financial system, their climate scenarios, which, which they've deliberately made available, the data behind them, the, the methodology behind them, not just for regulators, but for governments and investors and for companies, those scenarios should really be front of mind um, for every investor who's weighing up projects, industries and business models and in the pack for every company boardroom meeting. Because orienting the best interests of your organisation around the scenarios that will leave us with a healthier, more vibrant, more prosperous planet. And the third point to make is that there have been a number of very senior investors, business leaders, governments for well over a decade, probably led by Andy Haldane at the Bank of England, that have talked about the problems with a, a short-term focus on on growth, short-term return on investment, and particularly this idea of shareholder primacy which is why we've seen with the Banking Royal Commission in Australia and the future of the corporation project run by the British Academy, there's a strong push around the world to broaden our sense of stakeholders that that investors and businesses consider when they're looking at returns. So there's not this approach to shareholder primacy at all costs, but a broader set of stakeholders, employees, communities, 
suppliers to make sure that growth is delivering for all. I know a number of the super funds are looking at it. At at the same time, there is this constant drive between them based on their performance and rankings. So part of that is also driving, I think, a bit of a mentality of of short-termism versus this longer-term piece, which I think has this noble goal, which which you've mentioned, and sort of thinking beyond shareholder primacy and thinking about all the externalities that come from investments. But it still seems to be a bit of a regulatory challenge and a competitive environment challenge in terms of how to make sure that the the market structure also encourages this long-term investment. Do you see a bit of a disconnect between those two? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's always tension because, I mean, this has been that's why one of my um, my 10 steps in the article was about rewiring business for the long term. I mean, the business model has been has been very fragile, you know, and it wasn't just the Banking Royal Commission, but the Edelman Trust Barometer has found that inequity uh, caused by that those business models undermine trust. Over half of the respondents, I think, to the, the most recent barometer thought capitalism was doing more harm than good. And, and some of the attitudes research we've done at CPD shows that Australians want business to back long-term value creation for a larger set of stakeholders and to broaden uh, what they mean by capital, you know, economic, social, environmental governance. COVID, I think, has signalled a capacity to do both, but there's a long way ahead if we're going to think through the implications for business models, not just so far as they deal with systemic risk, but also how they, they change the direction of growth so that it can benefit more of their stakeholders. It's interesting you talk about the implications for business models, and, and that is one part of it. The other, the other side, which is the consumer, the being too much of a drain on the on the environment as well. You know, we've we've got an over consumeristic society, and so how do you give people almost a, a reevaluation of a good standard of living, uh, a good way of life, alongside you know the current arrangement where they're probably living a little bit more than than where their means suggest they should be? Is that a, a fair statement? I'm not sure if it's fair. I think that, um, I mean, yes, there's there's obviously a lot of people have written about um, affluenza. Uh, I think it was Richard Dennis who talked about it. But I think, I mean, Australia has more solar rooftops, I think, per capita than any other country in the world. There's a lot of community support for action around climate change and, and transitioning the economy, making it less dependent on carbon. And the lesson, I think, that should be obvious from COVID and what we now know, or at least have been reminded about systemic risks is that locking in carbon dependent growth will be a recipe for greater disaster. But that means communities, you know, regional and local communities can be empowered to lead the way in that. Australia had had missions that were focused on um, understanding and, and unpacking climate risk, but also missions around transforming um, to um, net zero communities and regions. We're seeing some of this around the country and I think that would be a really a powerful motivating force for the way that Australians think about their own contribution to getting to, to net zero, which we have to do as a, as a globe, not just as a, as a single country as part of the Paris Agreement. The other thing to note, though, Alex, is we've done some research at the Centre for Policy Development over the last few years about Australian attitudes to democracy, uh, to the role of government. And we've been really struck by what Australians believe the primary purpose of their democracy is. And we've given them a number of options, which range from voting to, you know, the ability to to live freely and other sort of procedural things that we often associate with democracy. But the answer, which is now three times as powerful, three times as popular, I should say, 
as any other is boosting equality and opportunity, especially for the most vulnerable. That, that answer is, is three times as, as popular as the next most popular answer. And I think what that tells us is that Australians, perhaps more than you know, most other countries in the world, want their democracy to improve the lives of others. They want it to have a positive impact on equality, especially for our most vulnerable citizens. And they want that in the best of times and especially in the worst of times. And they understand that the vulnerability we face because of climate change is an important systemic risk that must be responded to so we can do that more effectively. And we had no bigger reminder of that um, than the horrible bushfires that we experienced over the summer. And for those communities that have faced the bushfires and have now faced COVID, I mean, they are facing double disadvantage and it would be imperative for them and for all of us to make sure that when we're, we're plotting our way out and it will be a grind, that we're investing in the smart things that can make Australia more prosperous more equal well into the future. You talk about people being prosperous and, and having an equality of opportunity. What, what is the role of financial system in sort of helping to equalise? So I'm curious on, on how you think uh, the financial system could help. I mean, we, we've talked quite a bit at CPD about, about mobilising public-private missions around some of these grand national challenges. And, and certainly um, some of the issues we've spoken about are issues to which there should be private investment, particularly investment from superannuation funds that are really looking after the long-term interest of their members into action that will transform Australia for the better. And that investment can be done alongside governments, alongside businesses. And it's happening in many respects, particularly around around clean transition. We've seen a number of businesses and investors come out and declare commitment to moving to net zero, but also um, a commitment to making work more secure, to working with uh, unions to make sure that there are more, are more protections in place uh, for employees. And that's been particularly noticeable through COVID when the, the people that have been most affected are young people, women, uh, those in insecure work, those that don't have sufficient rights to work in our communities. Um, so I think that that absolutely needs to happen. It's not just a responsibility of government, but you know, you mentioned housing as well. And we're, we're talking as a number of Melbournians um, are locked in, in council houses. And one thing that has been very clear over the last few days is the unequal impact COVID is having on, on populations and people that have been left behind in many respects by communities, by businesses, by, by governments. Um, and social housing, social and public housing is a classic example of where we have not done enough to look after the most vulnerable in our society. So it, it has to be a joint effort. And it's not just about what government does. It's about what all those sectors of our community, business, finance do together. And it probably means, and I think there's been a lot of commentary on this over the last few weeks, it will mean changes to the way we think about tax and tax expenditures and rebalancing the taxes that we have on, on labour, wealth, land, negative externalities like climate uh, consumption so that we have a sufficient revenue base on which to ensure that we are we have the world's best social services, essential services for the most vulnerable in our community. Is there a particular uh, area that you've been looking into around sort of tax and, and its ability to make the system a little bit fairer? I think the obvious point to make and a number of reviews, the Henry Tax Review among them, um, have, have made it clear that, that we have a we have a, a strange reliance on, on income tax, on taxing labour, and, and we don't tax wealth 
land of negative externalities in the way that other societies do. And to have a more reliable tax base, we need to rebalance the way that we, we tax those different sources, but also the tax expenditures we have. And we saw at the last election that reforms to, to negative gearing, tax expenditures on superannuation became kind of political hot potatoes. And one thing we will need over the next decade as we, we, we come out of COVID and deal with all of the other challenges facing Australia and our region is that we have a reliable revenue base in order to uh, deliver world's best public services in combination with the community. So that will need to be that will need to be a focus, Alex, and, and I'm sure that it will be over the coming months and years. The other piece in terms of the changing work environment, you know, what role does government need to play in terms of helping people get back to work? There's obviously a large number of people, as you sort of addressed at the start of, the, of this conversation, of people that are out of work. What role does government need to play maybe going forward, particularly as there's going to be this very large transition of how pe- people work differently and previous roles will, will cease to exist? So have you got any ideas about the role of government in, in helping to get people back to work? We do. Um, Employment services has been a huge focus for CPD. I mean, look, I think the biggest mountain Australian governments have to climb now is is the jobs one. As I mentioned towards the top of of this discussion, the the caseload for our National Employment Services System Job Active is is now at around 1.4 million. It was 613,000 at the turn of the year. This is a system that has been strongly criticised, most recently in a national review 2018, and and found that it had to do much better, uh, particularly for the most disadvantaged job seekers. Uh, And the system is now overwhelmed. There have been a number of very important recommendations and reforms about more effective provision of supply and demand responses at regional and local level that will inevitably be accelerated because of, of COVID and governments have signalled a desire to do that, to go hard, early and fast in the regions and communities that need support most of all. We will need to work really strategically and cleverly as a country to make sure that the most vulnerable that are now on the unemployment caseload or the underemployment caseload don't enter into protracted unemployment because the evidence shows, including from the Reserve Bank, that once you're in entrenched unemployment, it's very difficult to get out and we have to be much better at structuring all of the different supports around pathways to employment uh, for the cohorts we know that are the most disadvantaged, whether that's people from culturally and linguistically diverse communities, whether it's people in contact with the criminal justice system, whether it's Indigenous Australians, whether it's people with disability whether it's changing the way other service and care systems interact with employment, uh, like childcare, for example, so that more people can can participate in the workforce. I could go on, Alex, on this for a while, but one of the things that CPD has been doing over the last few years is focusing on what employment and settlement services um, can do in place in communities if they're more effectively funded and structured. So you've got a collaborative local network working together uh, in partnership. And we've helped to set up a, a trial in Melbourne's West in Wyndham that's delivering fantastic economic and social results for refugees. There are other examples of this. And, and what these approaches require is for government not simply to be a contractor or an outsourcer of employment services, but to get back in the game and to deliver some of these services in partnership uh, with community organisations private providers, and with stimulus measures to boot that can stimulate new skills, new industries in the areas that will drive Australia's economy forward 
over the next decade, whether that's in clean energy, infrastructure development, transitioning to a net zero carbon economy, but also the supply chains and manufacturing base that can make Australia much more resilient and much more prosperous. This will be the biggest challenge the country faces over the next couple of years, dealing with this unemployment caseload. And we should be looking at it very much from the vantage point of of more of the same will be insufficient. We will need to, it will need to be a joint effort and one that is, that's properly resourced. And we think creatively about the sorts of wage subsidies and incentives that can be given so that we can build uh, new industries and support ones that will be vital to Australia's future. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time, Travis. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.